Welcome to the Signal Line Remote Viewing Podcast, a podcast owned and run by Daz Smith from RemoteViewed.com, the resource for everything remote viewing. This podcast is dedicated to sharing remote viewing related interviews, views, news, resources, and much more. Hi, I'm Daz Smith and welcome to The Signal Line. Today's podcast was recorded on 23rd July 2021 and it's a presentation and public discussion with Dr. Simeon Hine about structures on the moon and remote viewing. Dr. Simeon Hine is the director of the Institute for Resonance in Boulder, Colorado. The Institute is devoted to the study of subtle energy sciences including remote viewing, crop circles and related subjects. Dr. Hine is a PhD in sociology and has previously taught research methodology at Washington State University. Dr. Hine first learned remote viewing in 1996 and subsequently became involved in crop circle research. He believes that all crop circles, regardless of their origin, create magical effects by virtue of their shape and the subtle interaction between humans, plants and sacred geometry. In addition to assisting with the Institute for Resonance Crop Circle Tours, he continues to teach remote viewing in Boulder and in Japan. Simeon's most recent book is Planetary Intelligence, 101 Easy Steps to Energy, Well-Being and Natural Insight, a simple primer for anyone interested in connecting to subtle energies on a daily basis. This is a fantastic talk with lots of great interesting information on remote viewing, structures on the moon, and the kind of thing that remote viewers see on the moon on a daily basis when they get targeted with it. Enjoy the show, and we'll catch you next time. Take care. So without further ado then, it's uh, it's going to be a great talk this evening. I, I heard a, an earlier version of this uh, a week or so ago, and I thought it would be so fantastic. I reached out to Simeon, and we've had our chat since, and uh, here he is this evening. So I'll let him take it away because it's, it's going to be a really interesting chat for you. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks a lot, Daz. Uh, Daz and I just actually met just really recently, even though we've had these kind of parallel paths with the same interacting with the same people and some of the same subject matter. Daz has been in it longer than me. But um, uh, we met at another presentation like this and Daz thought, hey, this would be good for you guys, too. So. Uh, uh, so thanks, Daz, and thanks for all of you being here today. Uh, what we're going to talk about the subject is structures on the moon, structures on the dark side of the moon. And uh, I'm going to give you a keynote presentation with lots of visual evidence, which I think you'll enjoy, <laughs> including some RV drawings from Ingo. And uh, and then we'll have some discussion at the end. I'm not trying to convince you that this is true. I'm actually a sociologist. I'm interested in why we don't talk about things that are true, how we process subjects that are difficult for society to accept, all those issues around uh, anomalous science and new ideas and things like that. So I'm gonna present the evidence that I know. You can make up your own mind and I encourage you to do so, okay? So let me start the presentation and then uh, we'll have some short YouTube clips in the middle too with really good witnesses and then we can have some discussion about it. So let me go ahead and share my screen and we will see how this goes. Okay. 
Okay, is that coming across, guys? Looks good. Okay. Yeah, we can see it. So I want to show you what do we, this is the, now this is interesting. This is what, I, I'm not a moon structure researcher, as I just said. I'm, I'm a sociologist. I'm open to new information, new data. If I hadn't been open-minded to RV, I was an open-minded skeptic when I took it back in 1996 at the Farsight Institute. I wasn't sure if it was going to work, but I went there just, you know, to observe, to do it. And absolutely, you know, it worked. I didn't know that before I took it. Uh, but this is how I like to approach these subjects is to get my own experience with it. And I'm going to present you evidence that I've encountered. Um, I would say some pretty good evidence. Uh, and you can take a look and see what you think. So as I mentioned, I'm a sociologist by training. What do sociologists do? Well, sociologists look at society. They attempt to make sense of what's going on in terms of structures and change. But I'm particularly interested in hidden events. What are hidden events? Hidden events, and this is something that Ron Westrom, the sociologist, has talked about quite a bit. You could look him up from uh, one of the universities in Michigan. Hidden events are things that are widely experienced but seldom talked about. And we have lots of examples of that in society. It's not just these topics like structures on the moon and UFOs and scientific topics that conventional scientists like to dismiss as junk science or something like that. It's things that uh, people experience that they don't talk about a lot. And we're gonna look about that right now in the context of former NASA contractors and employees who've experienced evidence for structures on the moon that they haven't widely talked about. And when we put it in context of other hidden events, you can see there are some patterns here. Now, just examples of hidden events are things like uh, meteorites back in the early 1800s, 1700s. Uh, scientists at the time didn't believe there was anything beyond the moon that moved. They believed the planets were on these crystalline spheres and that nothing happened out there beyond the moon. The sublunary area, according to Aristotle's ideas, was where all the action was. And therefore, there could be no stones uh, falling from the sky because there were no stones in the sky. And it, it took several scientists at the time, uh, Jean-Baptiste Biot and uh, Ernst Florence Friedrich Kolodny, the uh, father of acoustics, who studied these meteorites presented an alternative perspective that they genuinely were extraterrestrial, which at the time no one really could accept because they didn't want to challenge the church or Aristotle. And all of a sudden it went from being volcano stones or uh, something terrestrial to something extraterrestrial. So these things can switch quite quickly. It switched very quickly in 1803 in France after a huge meteorite shower. Before then people were very reluctant to believe it. Other example of hidden events uh, that we often mention here, just before we get into the evidence, are things like child abuse. Here in the United States, child abuse was not considered real uh, before the early 60s. Uh, doctors and pediatricians thought that uh, children were falling out of trees or were being beaten by bullies. They couldn't imagine that parents would ever do anything like that to their kids. And it took uh, several meetings of professionals, pediatricians, and doctors and radiologists to come together, look at the evidence, look at the x-rays and so forth, and come to the conclusion that yes, these were broken bones was being caused by somebody, hematomas, you know, 
in the brain, things like this. And the, the consensus changed in 1962. Before then, child abuse was not considered real. So these sorts of ideas that we have about reality can change once uh, society decides to have some meetings and just take it seriously. I think this is happening now with this sort of topic. It just actually very recently, as you're probably aware, there has been a push in the United States to release information about UFOs, uh, now called uh, UAPs. I think that term was a, actually adopted first by the MOD in the UK. Uh, Nick Pope talks about that. Well, there has been this push from the TTSA group that Daz is familiar with and you've all heard of, former government officials coming forward to remove the stigmas around talking about UFOs, the sociocultural stigmas as it's called in this report, to look at the evidence, uh, Navy pilots in this country on the East and West Coast have been encountering these Tic Tac-like objects, as you're aware of, and they've probably been encountering these for a long time, just like we were talking about child abuse a few minutes ago. The evidence has been there. It's just been, this wasn't really good for your career. If you talked about something like this, if you're a pilot who's concerned about promotions, just talk to anyone who's in any military in any country. When you're up for promotion, they can bring up anything at your promotion hearing even something that your spouse did. So uh, in, unintentionally, you know, just mistakes you made. So you're not likely to bring up a UFO sighting at your, you know, you don't want this brought up. So there've been these barriers to people in our military talking about things that they've been countering all the time, just like people encountered meteorites. But the idea was, well, there was no idea. There's basically bureaucracy and no one's responsible for it. And it's just easier to push it away until the TTSA group started working a couple of years ago. You remember that article in the New York Times from 2017, uh, Glowing Auras and Secret Pentagon Programs, I believe the title was, where uh, uh, several authors, um, Helene Cooper and several others, Leslie Kane, came together and said, look, there's been this secret program in the Pentagon called ATIP, and before that it was called OSAP. And they've been actually looking at all these topics, not just UFOs, but all the topics that surround UFOs, including the space-time anomalies that people who experience this experience, I imagine this is experienced by people in the military too, when they encounter this phenomenon and so forth. It culminated in just a few weeks ago, this UAP task force, which has been at work in the Pentagon. Uh, it is a successor to ATIP advanced aerospace threat uh, investigation program. Now, according to Hal Putoff at the 2018 SSC IRVA meeting in Las Vegas, the threat in ATIP is not the UFOs or the UFO people, if there are any in those objects. It's the threat of your adversaries developing technology before you do, and then you have a Sputnik moment like we had in 1957, or all of a sudden the big bad Soviet Union has satellites and you don't have them, okay? So the threat is not necessarily, we've had, you've heard this just so you know, it's about getting behind in the space race. That's the threat, okay? In any case, in this U U UAP task force assessment, it's not the report. The report's coming out, I would should add, in 90 days from this date of June 25th. This is the initial assessment. That's why it's only nine pages long, including the cover in the back. <laughs> which leaves seven pages, which is not very long for a topic like this. However, they did mention 144 reports and said they could only identify one. 
out of 144. Now that is big progress compared to Project Blue Book, Robertson Panel, and the Condon Committee, which happened just up the street here at the University of Colorado, where they said, there's no scientific value, there's no military threat, we should drop it. It might scare people, so don't even talk about it. That's been the policy here in the US since the 1950s. Don't talk about it, it's gonna scare people. We're gonna have a war of the worlds moment, everyone's gonna be panicking, so just debunk it, create disinformation, We'll meet the person that actually created that campaign in a moment because he worked at NASA. In any case, you can see they identified the challenge to this topic is sociocultural stigmas, which, yes, that's a big one because you have dealt with this, those of you in the RV community, when you go to parties sometimes and people ask you what you do and you mention RV and they say, let me look that up on Wikipedia. I don't know anything. Oh, it said it wasn't real. <laughs> it's not real. I just looked it up. Stuff like that. You've dealt with this sort of challenge. Yeah, we all have. But we've been experienced with RV. We've been involved. We know it works. We know it's real. So uh, that is where we are within many of these topics, including the UFO topic. More and more evidence, as Hal Putoff said to us in 2018. The problem with covering up the UFO phenomena, you can call them UAPs or whatever you'd like to call them. Uh, AAVs, anomalous aerial vehicles, as the Navy refers to them. There's more and more sensor data, more and more satellites, better and better satellites, better and better radar systems. Uh, you, it's getting really hard to ignore all this data. You could be an ostrich and put your head in the sand, but you have to work harder and harder at being an ostrich. Eventually, you know, you reach a critical mass where it's just easier to talk about it. And that's where we are right now in the US. It's, it's coming forward. So it's a good time to talk about structures on the moon because uh, this topic has not come up yet, but it will. It will. And I'm going to show you why. So my background in getting involved with this topic started at Farsight in 1996. I, I took the class there uh, with uh, Courtney Brown, who you're familiar with. I took it there in 96, then he asked me to stay on to help teach it. He just, you know, uh, I guess he wanted someone with a PhD there, kind of give credibility the whole thing. And, and I, was, I, you know, I, could, I understood it. I was fairly good at it. So people showed up for the classes. And as you know, interesting people show up at RV classes. All of you who've been involved with RV, you know, or you might be one of these people yourself, someone who's had a security clearance, someone who's been in the military, someone that knows something that they haven't talked about before because it's a hidden event, right? So they don't feel comfortable talking about these topics to ordinary people, but they come to your RV class and all of a sudden, you know, they're chatting away like canaries <laughs> because they feel like there's someone there that can understand who they are and, and you won't think they're weird. So one of the people I met, a former student, this guy was a NASA contractor. Uh, his name is John Stevens. I haven't talked to him in a long time. This is like 25 years ago, folks. So I'm not sure if he's even around, but he told us that he had worked for NASA transcribing those 16 millimeter films that were in the lunar module that they took movies of as they coasted over the moon, landing and taking off. He said his job was to take the film and turn it into video. And he had developed this device. I can't quite remember what it was called, but he had patented it. It was his company that had this device. And he had gotten to see all the secret NASA films that to this day, we still haven't seen the original films taken from the Apollo uh, missions. And I imagine maybe even some of the earlier missions, Mercury and Gemini. And he transcribed this to video. And he told us in no uncertain terms, he had seen structures on the moon. He said it was so obvious. He said it looked like 
there might have been a war on the moon because some of these structures were really in bad shape. He said there were glass structures on the moon and some of them look like broken greenhouses now, but he had no doubt about it that you were looking at man-made structures. Let me just put it man-made like the ideogram. It doesn't mean it was made by humans, but just intelligently constructed structures. He said, if you even get your telescope out at night and look at the bright side of the moon, you're gonna see some of these. They just look too geometrical, but he had no doubt. And this is back in 96. Then I also met a former shuttle astronaut there and he showed me all the pictures of him in, in suit and training. Uh, this is, they train a lot more people to be on the shuttle at the time when the program was going, they never actually got up in the air, uh, you know, by a factor of five or 10 to one or more than that. There's a lot of spare crews. He was one of these people that trained and never flew. So he became a civilian astronaut. And he told me that he had seen really clear evidence of triangular craft that were, uh, the property of the US military. And these weren't shocking than that. These had been reverse engineered from extraterrestrial uh, vehicles. Now, this is all new to me. This is back in 96. I just graduated from graduate school, you know, getting my PhD a couple of years ago. And if you've ever been through school or anything, you know, like you think you know what you how the world works by the time you get out of graduate school. Believe me, you spent a lot of time. You've got your degree, maybe you've been teaching as an assistant professor like I did. You kind of feel confident you know reality. And then you meet these people who seem very credible, who are telling you, uh, we know there's extraterrestrials, we reverse engineer their craft, there's things on the moon. So my mind was kind of blown, not just by RV, but meeting these folks. So that was my first exposure to the topic. As a result of this, I started taking the topic seriously. Not only did I pursue RV and you know, study as much as I could and go to the IRVA conferences and the other conferences, the one by by Marty Rosenblatt and others here in the US. I started going to UFO conferences too, just to see, you know, are these guys telling us the truth? What else is out there that I don't know about? Uh, and so again, at RV classes, you meet all sorts of people. These are just some classes that I, since I started teaching here in Boulder after, you know, in the late nineties up, up till the present, you know, you meet people and some of these people tell you these stories over lunch breaks. A little harder to do over Zoom, but back then, you know, pre-COVID we would meet in person and you would, talk to people. So the story of viewing structures on the moon, for those of us in RV, we know that Ingo was really interested in this topic. And even just talking to Daz yesterday, I had no idea that Ingo had been involved with so much viewing of, you know, non-Earth targets. Um, I got to meet Ingo a couple times at the IRVA conferences and uh, when I lived in New York, uh, you know, not too long ago, I didn't live very far from him. And eventually uh, we were, I was able to go over and say hi to him shortly before he passed on. We had plans to meet further, but it didn't, you know, it didn't physically materialize on this plane of reality. But Ingo wrote a whole book, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, Penetration, the question of extraterrestrial and human telepathy. And it's really a fascinating book. I, I, I like the first part better than the second part, which was a little more philosophical. But the story he tells there is quite incredible. It reminded me of these NASA witnesses. He says that he was approached by some agency uh, who asked him to meet them in DC, come down. They had this whole coded procedure, you know, so that no one would follow him. And they have him, they're paying him $1,000 a day, which is pretty good money in the 70s, right? Uh, to view something which he later intuits doing the sessions he can see from the expressions on their face once he starts getting his drawings that this is the moon and he's getting structures on the moon 
activities, mining activities, all sorts of things going on. And he got this feeling from the sessions, I believe, that this is not humans. These are extraterrestrials, ec uh, telepathic extraterrestrials that, uh, you know, were interested in viewing us too and learning about us. So it was rather a complicated situation. You'll also remember in the book, he, uh, he has kind of extended co uh, contact with this organization. They take him up to Alaska at one point to see a black triangle sucking water out of the lake. I still remember that sentence in the book where he says, what is this shopping cart earth? You just need some water. You come stop by earth, suck water out of the lake. <laughs> in Ingo's kind of classic humoristic style. Uh, I, I did ask Hal about this uh, when I met him at one of these meetings because someone had asked him and I said, Hal, is this all true? And he goes, I, I didn't say it was true. What I said is Ingo didn't make it up. That's Hal's official quote. He said the same thing to Richard Dolan because Richard Dolan and I talked about it once and that got the same, Richard got the same response from him that I did. Ingo didn't make it up, which is how people who've been in the intelligence community confirm something to you, right? They can't, they've signed things, NDAs, but they can say he didn't make it up. They can't say it's true, but they, so uh, this was real interesting uh, history here. And um, it's a fascinating book if you haven't read it, it's been republished. So I encourage you to take a look at that. Uh, so what are we talking about when we're looking at moon bases and moon structures? It's things that look like this. And as I'm about to show you, there are witnesses who have seen this much higher resolution than we have. People that have worked within the military and intelligence communities who've come forward over the past 20 years or so, who have uh, seen this in facilities with very high resolution photographs that we haven't seen, but they look things like this. What, what are these? You know, what are we actually looking at here? Uh, if we look at Ingo's viewings, we know it was very accurate uh, with Jupiter. He, he viewed uh, one of the pioneer probes before it got to Jupiter. Um, he did this in April 73, as you can see from the top of this uh, P3 drawing here. And uh, I think the probe got there a couple months later, but you can see he's writing all these things here, mountains and thermal inversions and tornadoes and rings. He got the rings. No one at the time believed there were rings around uh, Jupiter. But when the Pioneer probe got there, um, and these are some of his viewings, uh, I think it's slightly over here. These are some of his viewing, Ingo's viewings of the moon, these bases, which we'll get back to in a second. But his, uh, his viewings of Jupiter uh, were turned out to be very accurate. And uh, in penetration, he goes through all of the sort of data he got in his RV session. And uh, most of them were confirmed, you know, cyclones, tornadoes, and uh, the orange color, the rings, uh, ice crystals in the atmosphere, all the stuff. So Ingo's viewing uh, about Jupiter turned out to be very accurate. He said, um, Six out of 13 of the factors were substantiated by 75. Uh, the rings weren't discovered until 79. So this, these are his drawings from the moon. Now, if his viewings were accurate with Jupiter, you know, you would expect at least some of them to be accurate about the moon. And these are not structures. Uh, you can look at this more closely in, in penetration, but uh, these are not naturally look, you know, 
structures that you would just normally see there if there hadn't been any intelligent activity there. Now, at the time, other people were publishing books about the moon. I think uh, Inga was familiar with George Leonard's book, Somebody Else is on the Moon. This is a former NASA employee who had what was available at the time for with the public photographs and people, you know, said maybe that's a scratch on the emulsion. Uh, maybe, you know, we can't tell exactly what it is. Um, these are not criticisms that will, you know, be an issue much longer if we see better and better photos. Back then, you know, this is the best that he had to work with. And there's other books at the same time period, Alien Bases of the Move by Fred Steckling and others, things that looked like this. Now, the real heavy hitting witnesses came forward in 2001 at Stephen Greer's Disclosure Project in 2001 at the National Press Club. I wasn't present there. I did get to go to the citizen hearing at the press club in 2013, a number of years ago, which was also very interesting. But this was the first of its type. Uh, all of these uh, presentations and witnesses are on YouTube to this day. You can find them out. Just go look for the Disclosure Project. Extensive long interviews with many government, military, intelligence, NASA witnesses about the reality of the extra, uh, extraterrestrial presence here and, and, and around Earth on the moon and so forth. And two witnesses come to mind here, though these are a lot of them are really worth listening to. Two of them that came forward, first was Donna Hare, that I'm familiar with. Donna Hare worked, she's a slide expert. She worked with a NASA contractor and she said that she, encountered people whose job it was to airbrush out the UFOs from NASA photos and other anomalies. And Donna Hare is one of these very credible, compelling witnesses that it's very hard to contest. I have some YouTube video and we're going to look at about a six minute clip here, which I think you'll find is very worth your time. So let me pull it up and you can hear in her own words, how she learned about the structures on the moon at one of these photo labs uh, at NASA. So let me go ahead and uh, bring this up and I will share the screen. Okay, let me see if I can switch this here. Let's see. Oh. Screen sharing, new share, that's how we do it. Ah, it's going to work. Okay, so this is Donna Hare, and we'll listen to about six minutes of this. During the 70s and 71, I worked in the Building 8 of NASA for a contractor, Philco Ford. Uh, they changed their name several times, and uh, over the years, uh, I worked in a photo lab, I worked in different areas of the company, on and off site. During the 70s, uh, I don't know the exact date, but I walked into the photo lab, uh, one of the restricted areas. I do have a, uh, a see, I did have a secret clearance, which I was not aware at the time there were clearances higher than I had. Uh, because those clearances are supposed to be kept secret that you have them. So I didn't know. I thought I had the top clearance. I walked into a restricted area, which was not my company. Uh, it was the NASA photo lab. 
And there they they put they developed the film from the moon and uh, satellite pictures, everything that's done by NASA. This day, that particular day, I walked into the photo lab in the restricted area, and this was between missions. Uh, one of the gentlemen I had been friends with, and I still talk to occasionally, uh, he pointed his my attention to one area of this mosaic. It was one panel of a mosaic, which are several several panels put together to form a larger picture. And these were either, I believe they were satellite pictures. I'm not sure, they were aerial looking down. And I, I said, this is really interesting. He explained everything. And then he, with a smile on his face, he said, look over there. And I looked and in one of the photo panels, uh, I saw a round white dot. And at the time it was very crisp, very sharp lines on it. And I said to him, uh, what, what is that? Is that a dot on the emulsion? And then he's grinning and he says, uh, dots on the emulsion don't leave round shadows on the ground. And there was a round shadow at the right angle, at the correct angle, the sun shining on the trees. I saw pine trees. I didn't see a coastline. I don't know where this was. But um, I looked at him and I was pretty startled because I'd worked out there several years and never seen anything like this, never heard of anything like this. And uh, I said, is this a UFO? And he's smiling at me and he says, I can't tell you that. I can't tell you that. What I knew he meant was it was, but he couldn't tell me. So I said, what are you gonna do with this information? And he said, well, we always have to airbrush them out before we sell them to the public. And I was just amazed that they had a protocol in place for getting rid of UFO pictures. So as a precaution, they were put in quarantine for a little while. This particular man was in quarantine with them and was part of their debriefing. He said that a lot of them talked about their experience in seeing these craft. I believe there was three on the moon when they landed. And uh, and I think, that, and this is the best of my memory, that the code word was Santa Claus for these uh, uh, craft. And then some that wanted to talk were threatened. If they talk, they've signed papers not to talk. They have their retirements taken away. Um, I was just overwhelmed with that piece of information because I started asking questions. Uh, certain people that I would know were key people in, in the organization. I take them away from the site. We go to lunch and I talk to them. And alone, they would tell me things and then swear if I ever said they said it, they would say I was lying. One gentleman that I knew very well was in quarantine with some of the astronauts. He said just about every one of them has seen things when they went to the moon that were, in fact, one said that they were there, craft were on the moon at that time. And this man has disappeared off the face of the earth. I've tried to find him, but I have his name. I've given to Dr. Greer. I'm sure he can find me. But um, a lot of the astronauts are told to keep it quiet and they're good Americans too. I mean, it's, it comes under the guise of national security. That's thing that I feel over the years uh, has been kept quiet. And how it's been kept quiet, I don't know. I have no idea. I, I asked guards, security guards. I ran into another security guard that was forced to burn a lot of UFO pictures. And he told me, he came into my office one day. This was when I worked at another job. 
he came into my office and he was very frightened. And he said, Donna, I'm, you know, I heard you were interested in the subject. He said, I used to work out there. And one day some soldiers came in in the fatigues and had me burn pictures. And he said that he was burning them and they, he was forced not to look at them, but he was tempted. He looked at one of them and it was a UFO on the ground. Shortly thereafter, he was hit in the head with a gun, a gun butt and he still had a scar on his forehead from that being knocked out because he looked at the picture. Now, this gentleman was terrified. He was scared out of his mind. And he uh, also said that in the picture was a UFO with little bumps on it. It looked like it had just landed it's to, to know this. But I, again, I have talked to people that know about it, know about it. And it's like a little underground. They'll come to me and talk to me in private. And they're afraid. Most of them are very afraid. And and I guess I'm, I'm not afraid because I wasn't debriefed. There was a point in time I had some people come out and tell me I shouldn't talk about this. Uh, they didn't threaten to kill me, but I got the message I shouldn't talk about it. But I'd already talked to them. So, uh, yeah, so you can see what the stakes are here. It's just, you can imagine, uh, you can imagine being, uh, people being, uh, you know, threatened like this, um, for seeing pictures. So if you think that, you know, the evidence isn't there, the, the issue with this is that you have people like Donna Hare, uh, who, you know, in, engaged the people that do the airbrushing. Can you imagine that what we've seen from NASA photos have been airbrushed? Uh, we'll see more of this in a moment, but you can get a feeling what, what's going on here is that there's a sort of a deeper, a, a deeper level of events going on in NASA that we haven't been told about and people like Donna and others have encountered it. Another one was Sergeant Carl Wolf. Uh, excuse me, there should be an E at the end of his name. That's my mistake there. Uh, he worked at an Air Force Base near uh, Langley Air Force Base near DC in 65. And uh, he was an expert in a certain, kind of like Donna in a certain type of machinery. Uh, they needed his help uh, at a facility. I'll let you him tell the story. This is another disclosure witness, someone that had contact with these photos, with the airbrushing. So I'll let him tell his story. One second, let me, let me change the, uh, One second here. My cursor has disappeared. I'm trying to get the, one second, let me get this screen up here. Well, this is something I haven't encountered before. This the cursor has changed to black, so I can't see it against a, a a slideshow with a black background. Let me see if I can. Okay, now it's over Daz. Let me see if I can get it to the top. Ah, we highlighted the right area. Let's see. New share. Okay, we got that up. 
Here it is. Come on. One second here. I have never encountered this, folks, before. One second. This is usually quite a reliable platform for presenting. There we go. Okay. We've got it back. So I'm going to share with you, we're going to watch two minutes of Carl Wolf's intro at the disclosure hearing. And then I marked off some segments, which I didn't have uh, last week, some detail about what these structures actually look like and how big they are on the moon. So here we go. My name is Carl Wolf and I was a precision electronics. Hello. In 1965, Are you hearing that or is it breaking up? It's breaking up. I think we might have a streaming problem. Here, let's try it again. Photographic repairman, crypto clearance. In the United States Air Force, I was stationed at Langley Air Force Base in Virginia. In 1965, um, in mid-1965, I was loaned to the Lunar Orbiter Project at NASA on Langley Field. Uh, Dr. Colley was in charge of that project. They had problems with a piece of uh, electronic equipment that was bottlenecking their production of photographs. I went to the facility and when I walked into the facility, there were scientists from all over the world. I was stunned actually to see people at a NASA project uh, from all over the world that didn't make any sense to me initially. Um, I was taken into the laboratory where the equipment was malfunctioning. I couldn't repair it in the dark. I asked to have it removed. A uh, airman second class was in the dark room at that time. I was also an airman second class. Um, I was interested in how the whole process functioned, how the data got from the lunar orbiter to the laboratory. I asked the young man if he described the process to me. He did. About 30 minutes into the process, he said to me, um, in a very distressed way, um, by the way, we've discovered a base on the backside of the moon. And then he proceeded to put photographs down in front of me, and clearly in these photographs were structures, uh, mushroom-shaped buildings, spherical buildings, and towers. And at, at that point, I was very concerned because I knew we were working at compartmentalized security. He had breached security, and I was actually frightened at that moment. And I did not question him any further. And a few moments later, someone did come into the room. Um, I worked there for three more days, and I remember going home and thinking, I can't be here about this on the evening news. And here it is, more than 30 years later, and I will testify 
under oath before Congress. Okay, so let me show you a little more. As I found this other clip, uh, this interview, which is, I think this is really, so listen a few minutes of this. This is quite fascinating. So this mosaic and he said, by the way, we've discovered a base on the backside of the moon. And I said, I said, whose? <laughs> what do you mean, whose? He said, yes, there's, we've discovered a base on the backside of the moon. And at that point, I became frightened and I was a little terrified, thinking to myself that if anybody walks in the room now, I know we're, we're in jeopardy, we're in trouble because he should be giving me this information. I was fascinated by it, but I also knew that he was overstepping a boundary that he shouldn't be stepping over. And then he pulled out one of these mosaics and showed, showed this base, which had geometric shapes. There were towers, there were uh, spherical uh, buildings. Uh, there were very tall uh, towers and things that looked somewhat like radar dishes, but they were large structures. So I, um, I didn't say any more to him because I was concerned again that somebody was going to come in at any moment, would catch us having this conversation and we would be in, in, in real trouble. I realized that he was telling me this information because he didn't have anybody else to talk to. Now, probably in that laboratory, he was probably one of the few uh, enlisted people. I mean, he was a worker bee and he had a high level security clearance, obviously, but he couldn't share that information with anybody else. And in those days, we didn't. When you had your security clearance, you took it seriously. It isn't like today where people don't take these things seriously. We had a different set of morals and ethics and values. That's the way we were raised. And we, we stayed bound by those agreements. So it was rare that someone would, would do something like this. But though and I were the same rank. I think he, he was very distressed. Uh, he, he had the same power and demeanor as the scientists outside the room. They were just as concerned as he was. And he needed, to, he needed to discuss it with somebody. So that was the end of it right there. I didn't take it any further than that. I, you know, I, I just filed it away. But the interesting thing, every day that I went home, I would think to myself, I can't wait to hear about this on the news, you know. And, you know, so I'd turn on the TV and I'd look at the news to see if they're going to announce we've discovered a base on the back side of the moon, being really naive, you know. And, of course, here it is 30-some years later, and we still haven't heard about it. But uh, I, it, at the time, I had uh, so I'm not sure what that's all about. That always that question always comes up in my mind. If I compare it to what I'm seeing now, because I do have photographs that have artifacts in them that are similar to what I saw, they're massive. Some of the structures are, you know, a half a mile in 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 size. So they're they're huge structures. Yeah. I mean, and they're all different size structures in different photographs. You would have to have an above top secret security clearance, which generally would be crypto, um, cryptologic or above. In, in my case, you know, I ultimately did have a cryptologic security clearance. And when I did have that clearance, I had access to all of the imagery uh, from the U2s, from the satellite 
photography. I had access to everything we were doing. Now, the, the thing that was interesting about my job as an electronics technician, I got to go into every area of the facility. I got to go into the war room at, at SAC, Strategic Air Command, and, and did maintenance on equipment there. So I would see a lot of data that people generally wouldn't see with my rank. Normally, you would go into your job, you do your one little task. If you were a photographic interpreter, that's all you did. You didn't discuss what you did with anyone else. If you worked on U2 imagery, you worked on U2 imagery. If you worked on satellite imagery, you worked on satellite imagery. But you didn't discuss your job with anyone else. And you only did your, your task. If you were a photographic processor, you only processed the images. You were not allowed to discuss what you saw in those images with anyone else. We were briefed extensively about what this compartmentalization looked like. You know, you didn't have conversations about what you were doing. So from seeing with my sister because she was interested in the phenomena. I read Colonel Corso's book, The Day After Roswell. In the book, he said a lot of fantastic things. And he also said near the end of the book that there was a base on the backside of the moon. And when he said that, I said, aha. So I, I began to believe that everything he was saying was true. He was saying a lot of really profound things about the crash in Roswell and alien technology and uh, whatever, and how it had been mainstreamed through the Office of Foreign Technology by himself. So I knew that he was probably telling the truth. It just says, said to me, this, this guy's telling the truth because I've had this experience and I know it's real. Yeah, it was Edgar Mitchell. He said, come forward. And I said, okay, it's time to, to start stepping out with this information. Because I was a little irritated, you know, that the government had been lying about all of this for years and covering it up. And uh, um, I felt it was time to get beyond it. It's, there's a lot more weight to this than, than I realized, you know, a lot more uh, cover-up than I realized. <laughs> yeah, a lot more deception than I realized was going on. Well, some of the shapes, as I said, were some of the buildings were, were very tall, thin structures. I don't know how tall they were, but they must be very tall. Uh, Did you see profile shots of them? I or saw angular shots with shadows. Angular shots with shadows. Um, there, there were there were spherical and domed buildings, spherical and domed buildings that were very large. Um, they, they must be, you know, half a mile in, in, in scale because they were in relationship to the scale of the photograph. They, they, they stood out very clearly. They were large objects. Um, it's interesting because I tried to relate them in my own mind to, to structures here on Earth and they, they don't compare to anything that you see here in scale and structure. They're similar to, to a degree. Um, I mean, I tried to relate them to metal structures and I couldn't see a metal definition. They're more like a, uh, uh, a stone structure, but a fabricated stone. But some of the buildings uh, seem to have uh, very reflective surfaces on them. Uh, so a couple of structures that I saw reminded me of um, cooling towers at, at uh, power generating plants. They had that sort of a shape. Some of them were, were just very, very straight and tall with a flat top. Uh, some of them were round. Some of them looked like a Quonset hut, you know, with a domed kind of like a greenhouse. And all of these buildings were 
clustered together. So there were, there were the particularly shot that I saw, there were several clustered together over a landscape, a fairly large landscape. There, there was um, one building that had a, a dish-like shape to it, but it was very large. Uh, looked like a radar dish, but it was a building. It could have been a radar dish. Uh, you know, it, there was another building near it with a truncated top that with an angular top that was truncated. I didn't want to look at it any longer than that because I felt that my life was in jeopardy. Do you understand what I'm saying? I would love to have looked at it longer. I would love to have had copies. I would love to have, you know, said more about it and discussed it more. But I knew I couldn't. And I knew that that young fellow who was sharing this was really, really overstepping his bounds at that point. I felt that he he just needed somebody to talk to. He couldn't, he hadn't discussed it, couldn't discuss it. And he wasn't he wasn't doing it. For any ulterior motive, other than the fact he was in a distressing Yeah. So, um, wait a second. Let's go back to the slideshow. So, what do you think about that? I mean, hello. This is really, uh, let's see, let's get our keynote back here. Let's see. Can you see my screen again? Not at the moment, no. Okay, let me let me do let me try it again. Let me lower this down. Yeah, so this is, you know, you can see all the elements here. Uh, that first of all, it's great feedback and anyone who's ever done on sessions on structures on the moon. We had a lot of good, real detailed feedback there in terms of shape, sizes, magnitudes. I thought that was really good. But you can also see the other side of it, which is the level of fear that exists around sharing this type of information. Uh, and that is pretty evident there. So wait a second, let's see if I can get back to sharing this again. Share screen. All right, we got it back. Okay. So that was uh, Carl Wolf. Sadly, he uh, was killed in a traffic accident a couple of years ago. He was on a bike. He was hit by a tractor trailer. From what I've read, it doesn't seem suspicious, but it's hard to lose someone like this. He risked a lot to tell us just that. Uh, even though his security clearance expired in 98, and this is 2001, I mean, imagine someone with a high security clearance like that telling us all that stuff. So how many other people are out there like Donna Hare and Carl Wolf that we haven't even heard from yet who haven't felt confident enough to come forward? Any case, uh, here's another witness from the Disclosure Project, which I'll mention at the end, just because he connects to our next witness. This is Lieutenant Robert Jacobs, who worked at Vandenberg, where they test a lot of missiles. And he had an experience, which will tie into our next witness here in a second. So the next witness is someone I came across in 2017 at one of the UFO conferences, Open Minds UFO conference that's held in Arizona, not far from Scottsdale. And this was Ken Johnson, who's a former Marine, he was also a civilian astronaut, like that person I met at Farsight in 96. He trained on all the equipment, never went in uh, on the shuttle or anything like that, or any of the lunar missions, but he, uh, he uh, 
was trained to do so and help train the astronauts to work with the lunar modules. He worked with Grumman and he knew all the equipment and got all the astronauts prepared for their flights. He later became the director of the data and photo control, I think it's center division in the lunar receiving lab at NASA. So he had access to all uh, of the photos, all of the rocks and so forth. Now I have to say there is some controversy around Ken and I've done my research on it. When he was at the conference, he referred to himself as Dr. Ken Johnson. It turned out his doctorate was in theology from an online university, but it is clear why he did this. They told him at NASA one time, they called him into the office and said, Ken, we don't want fighter jocks. He was a former fighter pilot. We don't want fighter jocks, astronauts. We want PhDs, people like Edgar Mitchell. So he figured if he could put a degree behind his name, he might get on one of these flights. He wanted to be on Mars missions, but he's 75. So I think that's his motivation for doing that is they told him he needed a PhD to you know fly. And uh, so that was one thing, but all the other evidence around him, he has all the backing documentation I've seen that he did all of this. He worked at all these places. He has the letters of recommendation. I was just going through the DVD again last night of the presentation. He showed us, showed us all the letters of uh, commendation for all his services exactly at these locations. So he trained as an astronaut and later, uh, I forgot what CSD is. There are all these departments at NASA uh, testing the equipment and so forth, there's him in all the different suits and, and flying on those zero G flights on the C, uh, I think it's the C-130s or something where they do the steep dives to simulate zero G. So he had, the story with Ken is his superior calls him into the office one day, says uh, Grumman's laying off a lot of people because the one of the Apollo missions over, I want you to, Ken had five copies of every photo requested by anyone around the world they needed to have copies of the photos so they knew the angle of the sun when people would request lunar samples. They wanted to know how much sun the sample had received. He would make five copies of every eight by tens of from the negatives of every photo that was requested. And one day his boss calls him and says, just destroy all the photos. We, we don't want them here anymore. And Ken thought it was like owned by the taxpayer. He was appalled. He saved two sets of it. He ended up with all of these original uh, photos from all the NASA photographs. And uh, so what I'm going to show you in a few moments is what people have seen when they looked at so many photographs and blew them up. You remember that witness, John Stevens from Farsight, who said you could see things. I'll show you those in a second. But another interesting thing about Ken is he said he was called into a meeting by Dr. Thornton Page, who ran uh, the... Uh, the lunar division of NASA, uh, Page being a very well-known astrophysicist. Uh, and it was for Page and six, only six other people with security clearances. And Ken says, he, he checked the film out. He knew how to run this particular projector. It had zoom and everything. And Page said, okay, stop here, rewind it, replay it. And what they saw and what Ken saw were these little five dots that you can see in the Chiolkovsky crater. And they looked at these backwards and forwards for several minutes. Apparently Page said, well, boys, what do you think of that? The other six guys in the room, everyone laughed. Ken got the feeling they knew what this was. This is like what Carl Wolf and Donna Hare were just talking about. A real bona fide base on the moon. Ken said it looked like if you took your fingers together, tips your fingers, looked them head on like five domes, 
like that, self-illuminated in one part of the crater. And when he went out, he was just like Carl Wolf. He said, oh my God, this is amazing, a base on the moon. We discovered something. And he was told by Page to reshow this to a wider audience of NASA employees during lunch the next day. So he goes back into the room to check out the film. And it's at this point, he goes into this secondary levels of rooms there and he discovers people painting over these huge negatives from the cameras and the film. And he asked them what they were doing. And they, one of them joked, we're professional strippers. And we strip out things that the public shouldn't see or might be uncomfortable seeing. They justified it on the spot to Ken saying, we take out things that would distract from the rest of the moon. You know, debris or whatever could be out there. But they admitted they were, would put acetate, it was developed by Disney originally, apparently they put acetate over it, repaint it. Ken goes, checks out the film. He shows the crater again to the audience and it's dark, there's nothing there. These are not there the next day. He runs into Paige that afternoon says, hey, Thornton, what happened to that base we saw on the moon? And apparently Paige winks at him and says they were never there. And that was it. They had been airbrushed out. It was in this crater filmed uh, with the 70 millimeter camera, Apollo 14. Keep in mind, there were two modules. There was the command module and the lunar module. They were able to, they were at different places taking this from different angles. It's in that crater. And uh, this is a representation of it by uh, Brett Shepard, who's an artist that works with Ken. He was at the presentation. And you can order this for yourself from the Open Minds TV, People UFO Congress, if you want to see the whole presentation. Um, so that's sort of what it looked like, you know. And keep in mind what Wolf said, these long, tall towers and these round buildings and stuff. Same sort of stuff. This is a kind of... A, Brett Shepard's rendition based on Ken's description of what it might have looked like, you know, these domes. And then keep in mind what Carl Wolf said, things that looked like radar dishes but were buildings. What does that look like? It's exactly what Wolf was talking about. Very interesting, very interesting. Now, uh, this is what it looked like later uh, from a slightly different angle. But you can actually see them in this photo, and that's Thornton Page there. You can see in this inset here towards the middle, you see those little dots? There they are again. So even though, Ken said, even though they blacked it out, it seemed to come through a little if you know where to look. So this is more evidence. Again, if we just had Ken Johnson by himself, you would, is this really happening? But you heard Donna Hare, you heard Carl Wolf, you heard the testimony of the people I ran into at Farsight that they, these things are there, and I think these witnesses are super credible. Uh, Edgar Mitchell, interestingly enough, uh, we have some evidence that he initially said there was no evidence of extraterrestrial activity associated with the Apollo missions or any of the other missions. But later on, as you heard Carl Wolf said, he got Carl Wolf to come forward. He completely did a 180 helped Stephen Greer with the Disclosure Project, got so many witnesses to come forward. I've spoken to him myself personally. He passed away a few years ago. He would be at conferences. He would be at all sorts of interesting conferences, you know, new science conferences and all sorts of stuff all over the West out here. I got to listen to him many times about quantum holography. And he was a huge proponent that he said he hadn't seen anything 
personally uh, a vehicle, but he, all the other astronauts, he said most of them had actually seen it out their windows or on the moon and so forth. He got in trouble for taking this camera back with him. Uh, this is the one that filmed that base, alleged base in the Chilkotsky crater. NASA told them to put it back in the lunar module. They were gonna crash it on the moon. He thought it's gonna to go to waste. For some reason, he decided to save it. 45 years later, he sold, tried to sell it on eBay and the government uh, was gonna take him to court, said it's government property. He said, well, you told me to dispose of it. And he had to, he donated it to the Smithsonian. This is the camera that filmed that Chilkovsky crater. And by the way, people that have criticized Ken have said they, you know, the lunar, Apollo 14 never went over the crater, but it's in the uh, it's in the voice transcript right there, Edgar Mitchell. And he's even noting how the color is a little different than he expected. You know, the little five uh, domes there and stuff. He says it looks it's a little different color. It was reddish and it, uh, it shows that they were right at the Terminator. He says, see how black it is out there. Anyway, that's Edgar Mitchell talking. They mentioned Chilkovsky right there. Here's another uh, set of photos. Now, this is because Ken has an entire set of photos. I think he's put a lot of them online. I'll see if I can find the web address. This they just discovered looking at the Apollo 15 module. But if you look at the inset, look at those little dots. Those are domes, the smallest of which are the, each the size of the Houston Astrodome. So, uh, these are large structures and they're self-illuminated from the inside and they're arranged in a linear order. <laughs> so looks awful lot like structures to me. You normally just, even Carl Sagan said, where you find lines, it's man-made, okay? Good old Carl Sagan. So um, this is what, you know, very linear, large self-illuminated, what, what could those be? This is something, some people call this the paperclip. This could be natural. There isn't the same gravity on the moon that you find on earth, but they also discovered this looking through Ken's photos. And by the way, this is his, uh, his book, Ken's Moon. You can, you can look at this for yourself. I'm not saying you should buy this, but if you want to read more about this and see these pictures yourself, it's in his book that you can get online. Uh, this could be natural. We don't know. It's a mile above the surface. Um, so could be volcanic or who, who knows. Uh, but these are interesting. Again, think about what you heard from Carl Wolf, dishes on them. If you saw this on Earth, you would say these are radar dishes. Uh, I don't have a great photo. I did attempt to get better pictures of these last night, but I realized you can't watch a DVD on your computer and do a screenshot. Something blocks it. So I couldn't get a better resolution of this, but you can see in the lower left where they've done some contrast enhancing. Those look a lot like you know, dishes, right? Round structures around a crater. They certainly don't look like natural structures. And again, we had Wolf talking about these sorts of things. Uh, here they are again. Uh, this is a picture from the book. You know, I have a little dot in the center. So these are the things when you look at them, look at an awful lot like human made structures. Now, this is a really interesting one. You heard them talking, uh, asking Carl Wolf, was it angular view or well, what did he say? What was the other term when it's directly in front? This is directly in front. This is the enlargement of a crater from Ken's original photos that he got that he didn't destroy, that they asked him to destroy that he didn't. He didn't follow orders. And he kept some of these. And you know, you can go over them, you can digitize them or you can go over with a magnifying glass. This is directly from one of Ken's photos. It looks an awful lot. If you blur your eyes a little bit, you can see it a little better. 
they call it the lunar ruins. It's like the lunar Acropolis. I mean, it really looks to me like a structure. I'm sorry. That's a structure. It does not look like something you just find in any old crater hit by a meteorite, right? You can see rect lines there, 90 degrees, and all of these structures look, this looks like a, a structure. So uh, again, this evidence is consistent with what these witnesses have said. Then there are these sort of objects. Uh, again, if you look at the inset, this on the right, that is not the inset. That's what human balloons look like. But down there, there's something that looks like it's rising out of a crater that looks just like a balloon. It's on the left here. You can even see a wire coming out of there uh, to the left, right? Are you going to just find that on any old planet that's just been bombarded or moon been bombarded by meteorites? That is a structure from 19, like 1965 or something. What, who was there in 1965? Now, they were planning this Project Horizon, and uh, Ken did talk about this at the presentation. It was Trudeau, who actually was Corso's uh, General Trudeau from World War II, who was Corso's uh, superior officer. And Trudeau was the one allegedly in this whole Roswell story that Corso said, told him to go to these locations and he found the boxes of things related to Roswell. Um, they were planning to do a moon military base on Mars. It was called Project Horizon. Apparently it never happened. But I mean, we don't know whose this is, but there's something there before the astronauts got there. I think we can at least see that. Uh, assuming these are the real deal uh, photos, these are the originals. Here's these strange structures that they were able to photograph from the Apollo modules all the way from Earth and all the way back. At one point, they radio to mission control. Mission control, where is the rocket booster orbiting around the moon? How far away? They said 17,000 miles. They were wondering what this was. Is this the rocket booster? You can see it in Apollo 11, Apollo 12. I mean, what is this? Who's who else is out there? Some of these things on the right, I mean, they even look like little UFOs. <laughs> so uh, that's a photo rendition of someone's UFO. But in the center, you can see awfully UFO-like things, okay? So, um, so this, now, one thing I came across that I wasn't able to reference as well last time, uh, Pamela, um, Pamela Hanford, an MI6 uh, service person. This is from Timothy Good's book, Earth and Alien Enterprise. He says he talked to Pamela Hanford, a former employee of MI6. She was at a conference in Spain, a NASA conference, and she heard uh, Neil Armstrong talking through the door to someone else. And this guy who was a professor, uh, an astronomer or something said, what really happened out there on Apollo 11? I just showed you that photo of that object. He's an arms, according to, uh, what's her name again? Hanford. She's passed on now. It's okay to talk about this. Good said that what she said was this. He said, Neil Armstrong said, it was incredible. Of course, we'd always known there was a possibility, but the fact is Herb, we were warned off. There was never any question of our building a space station or a moon city. How do you mean warmed off, said Herb Schwartz. I can't go into details except to say their ships were far superior to ours, both in size and technology. Boy, were they big and menacing. No, there's no question of a space station. Uh, Schwartz, NASA had other missions after 11. 
and Armstrong said, yeah, naturally NASA was committed at the time, but couldn't risk a panic on earth, but it was a really quick trip and back again. Okay, from Apollo 11. So this, and you know, Timothy Good's a good serious researcher that he says is verbatim what Hanford told him, again, who is now passed on. Uh, he asked, uh, Hanford went down and asked Armstrong, she saw him at dinner and he said, I don't ask me, I can't talk about it, <laughs> okay? So what did they see up here? Now, here's another interesting piece of data, evidence, photos. This is another one of Ken's photos that was enhanced by Brett Shepard. You can look him up. He's written book, I think one's called Digitized Moon. It's taking all these and you can see more if you scan them into a digitized format, you can even see more detail. What look like walls, look at that bottom photo. There are things there that look really straight and angular and so forth. So this is more evidence. Again, what John Stevens told me 25 years ago of structures and ruins, it just seems consistent with like that, folks. All I'm going to say is this story is very consistent, starting with the 96 witness I encountered at Farsight all the way up to these. It's, it seems to me like very consistent information. Now, going back to Carl uh, Robert Jacobs, uh, he worked at Vandenberg, and he said that his job would be to film these missile launches with a very good quality film camera, and then they would review the footage. He said that when they reviewed the footage once, they saw something like this. First of all, the missile had exploded in flight about 10 miles off the surface of the Earth. They didn't know what happened. A day later, they're looking at the film footage. This is something from the 70s, I believe. Uh, and they see a little disc, an object flying around the warhead, zapping it with some laser-like energy from three directions, and then the warhead spirals out of control. Uh, Jacob said his boss came to him and said, what the hell is this? And Jacob said, I don't know. I was, I was just filming. I, I, I don't know what it is either. Well, guys came from Washington, confiscated the film, never seen again. Kind of like what happened in the 2004 Nimitz incident, if you've been following any of that from Kevin Day and Gary Voorhees and all the guys that worked on the Princeton and the Nimitz, uh, guys confiscating the data. Well, anyway, it's interesting that Ken Johnson, I haven't got to confirm this with him, but he said during the presentation, he, he worked at Vandenberg after uh, retiring from NASA at this missile test range. And he said he saw these films. Uh, it could have been other episodes. I'm not sure if it's the same episodes that Jacob saw. I don't think they were because Jacob said these films were confiscated. Uh, Johnston says he saw activity like this still going on at the base. So you really wonder what's going on with all these witnesses repeating each other, you know, reinforcing their story. So here's the final witness I encountered in 2014, same Open Minds Conference outside of Scottsdale. Dr. Richard Hoover, probably one of the leading astrobiologists on the planet. I, I got to spend five days talking to this guy. He had quit NASA because he's an astrobiologist and he had encountered a couple sorts of behaviors from NASA that were just like what you heard from the previous witnesses. The first picture that he showed us was from the 2004 Mars lander, the rover. It found this object in a rock. It's on Earth, you can see what we would call it a crinoid. It looks an awful lot like a crinoid. Now, did NASA say, wow, could this be a life form on Mars that we're seeing right now with our rover? No, they grounded off with their rock grinder and it was gone within a couple hours. Now you heard uh, Donna Hare talk about them burning photos and things, UFO photos and Ken saying, destroy the photos. And here they are destroying evidence again. Uh, 
Uh, not only that, uh, Hoover had looked at a lot of meteorites. Hoover is an expert in extremophiles. Now, extremophiles are organisms that can survive on Earth in very extreme conditions, very cold temperatures, boiling water, nuclear power plants, you know, they're immune to radioactivity. And he would travel all over the Earth going to the Arctic, finding these extreme organisms. And he published over 300 peer-reviewed papers on extremophiles. He said he found the same thing in meteorites on Earth, Meteor carbonaceous meteorites. He said you'd crack them open and you'd see these diatoms, which I have at the lower left there. Diatoms are these single cellular organisms that have a silica shell. Uh, and they're very geometrical, very nice to look at, beautiful. He said you would find these exact things, no doubt about it, in meteorites. You crack them open, put them under a microscope, there'd be the diatoms. NASA didn't disagree that they were diatoms, but they said they must be a form of contamination from the hammer that they're using to crack open the meteorite. It didn't end there. They ordered him not to talk about it at conferences. They said, don't present at conferences. And he was just enraged. I mean, it's a professional person. This is their, what they do, you can present at conferences. And they said uh, it might upset fundamentalist religious groups. The White House has told us they don't want you presenting this. Can you believe it came from the White House? Talk about cover-ups. So he quit. He quit NASA. A very confident, qualified person quit because they were told not to talk about this. So here we have all, this is the end of my presentation. We can go to questions. And say, here's all these witnesses from NASA saying pretty much the same story. Now, a couple of weeks ago, the director of NASA in response to the UAP task force, they interviewed him. You saw that, guys. He said, oh, we're interested in UFOs now. We don't know what they are, and we've got the scientists. So all of a sudden, they've changed their tune. Very opportune timing. I think they were probably ordered to change their tune. But until now, it has been shut up and calculate, you know, destroy evidence and so forth. So to me, this really qualifies as a hidden event, like I was saying in the beginning. A lot of these NASA people have experienced this, the ones we know about, but it's not widely discussed. They don't have anywhere to go. Uh, I do have a video about my interview with Richard Hoover on YouTube, um, so uh, you can read more about exactly what he said. But I asked him privately, you know, Richard, if you found these crinoids, I mean, if you found that in an Earth fossil, would you have any doubt that the crinoid goes, no, it, uh, you'd be 100% certain that's crinoids. But this was Mars. So in any case, thanks for listening. I appreciate it. <laughs> Good hour and 20 minutes there. In Black Swan Guests, I have some more about, that's my book about interviews with some of these witnesses. I even have a story there from Lynn Buchanan. <laughs> he, he contributed a story of his experience, but I have stories there from Richard Hoover. Now, let me add one more thing. You heard Carl Wolf saying that there were a lot of people of different nationalities at this NASA or NSA facility uh, looking, seem a kind of concerned about these photos of things on the moon. Uh, I've heard this from other witnesses when they've been asked to meet about this or present that the room is filmed. They said it was like the United Nations. So I don't think this is just a USA cover-up. This is not just coming from the US, though you might be tempted to think that if you live here, like some of us do. This is an international, internationally known. It could be a UN operation that's classified 
based on my information, just like Wolf was saying, there were people from every nationality that are with interpreters. I have a story in Black Swan Ghosts of a guy named Peter Leather. I don't know if you ever ran into him, Des, at the Wagon and Horses in Beckhampton. He was a jockey. Oh, he told us of a fascinating encounter story. He actually encountered something that walked out of a craft in Surrey one night when he was with a buddy. And he got some phone calls. Uh, they finally asked him to come to a meeting, a UFO conference in nearby Manchester. So he takes the day off, his boss lets him go. He goes down to the basement of the pub and he goes, where's the UFO conference? They go, well, Mr. Leather, we wanna hear about your story. And that's all they wanted to talk about were his drawings of what he encountered. But the thing that stuck, sticks in my mind based on what Carl Wolf, it reminded me, well, Peter said every nationality was there with us. They were sort of wearing a uniform and you had, he said it was like the United Nations, just like what Wolf said and very concerned. So I imagine that there are international organizations that are dealing with this issue. We haven't heard about them yet, but it's not just a US uh, sort of cover up. In any case, thanks for listening and anyone have any questions? I just had something to add first, um, and this literally is just over the last day or so. Uh, John Ringwald from the Black Vault, who's you know uh, very uh, well known for bringing out freedom of information documents, he put in a request uh, several weeks ago and received a document literally yesterday, I believe, that the uh, the people that were involved in doing that that UAP report you showed at the beginning. Uh, before that happened, they had a very covert classified meeting with top people at NASA. Uh, and he's got all that documented in this in this new document as well. So, you know, showing that there is a lot of this collaboration stuff going on behind the scenes. He's investigating that as as we speak. So that's that's pretty much new within the last 24 hours. Fascinating. I wouldn't be surprised. Isn't it great to be alive at a time, folks, where all this is coming out and the government's the one pushing for the disclosure, uh, allegedly? We survived decades of interest in this and all of a sudden you get, uh, I mean, apparently we're told there's a 40 minute video that have been shown, shown to people with security classification. You've heard about this? Yeah. The Congress and Senator people have seen this. The Congress people and senators say it's like looking at a sci-fi movie. They were yeah. in shock. You wouldn't well, be in shock if you're on this call because you've been exposed to this, but they would be. And Dr. Richard Dolan as well is uh, doing a broadcast the last few days that he's had some insiders that can't be named talking about paragraphs that are in the uh, the extended document. That oh, the got classified version. Yes. Yes. Now, this is interesting, uh, Des, that you brought up John Greenwald, because I've been watching his videos. I mean, it's just so fascinating. Stuff is coming out, as you're saying, you know, day by day. And John has done a great job with these FOIA requests. That's what we call it in the US, freedom of information. There's a law here that agencies have to give information if you write them. And he does this. He's been doing it since he's a kid. Is if you seen, yeah. Yes. So he uh, says, and I don't know if this is true, that the classified version is only 17 pages long. That's what they wrote back to him. Now, we don't know if that's the full version, but you bring up a good point. There's a classified version that we haven't seen. We saw the nine pages take off the cover in the back at seven. Yeah. There's a longer version. And so apparently someone has talked about seeing this classified yeah. version. Yeah. Yeah. So there could be photos, particular cases. I'd love to see what they said about the moon photos. Too bad Ingo isn't here to share in the fun. <laughs> probably a bit early for that yet in the disclosure, but um, yes, I guess, probably I guess we will get to it eventually. But that's why it's a good topic for us as remote viewers because a lot of us have been tasked the moon. Yes. I know I've been tasked it, you know, many times myself over the years. 
and we're only just now starting to get solid feedback on it. So it's, it's, I hope this was some good feedback from some of these folks. Yep. So. Uh, Don, you you had your hand up. Do you want to ask a question? Oh, yes. Simeon, that was just fantastic. I, uh, you're really blowing our minds here with all this. Uh, some of this I've seen before. A lot of it is new. A um, couple of things came to mind. First of all, uh, you mentioned that it seems like it's a cover-up on a, like a worldwide scale. Um, maybe UN is involved. Um, have you discovered any countries that are more liberal, more open, um, want to say more and aren't as uh, hidden as uh, maybe the United States? That's a great question, Don, and thanks. Um, uh, to prepare for this lecture, I rewatched these interviews that I had already seen, but it made more of an impact this time. Even those of us interested in these topics, the more you see it, you begin to see details you didn't remember when you watched it 15 years ago. And so it was fascinating to watch Wolf and O'Hare again because I, I could really put it together and, and it made sense with Johnson and, and Ingo's, you know, I can, it just kind of came together. Maybe there's just a time lag. The countries that are more open about it, they are because at the citizen hearing, we had an entire contingency of folks from Latin America. The citizen hearing was a week long, uh, five day event with 40 witnesses. They couldn't get any sitting Congress people or senators to attend. So they had to hire retired congressmen or senators and pay them because no one, everyone they asked to a sitting who's currently in office said it would be a threat to getting reelected. Sure. Yes, it's not career enhancing. <laughs> so <laughs> as Hal put up once said to us, 2018, not career enhancing. So they, okay, so the citizen hearing five days, there was a whole panel of folks from Latin America and they told us they are more open to it than we are. They do not want to tick us off. These were people from the military in Latin America who would encounter this up close and personal. There was even a fighter pilot that got in a dogfight with one of these objects in Peru, Oscar Santa Maria. You could look it up because just the past two or three weeks, all the citizen hearing videos have been put online. You don't have to buy them. You can go on YouTube and look for the Latin American hearings. Those folks said they go to schools, to schools to give lectures about the UFO and the UFO people, to kids, to tell them not to be afraid that they don't think that they're harmful. And if you see one of these, don't get, don't panic. Now, this is so, amazing. I've never uh, heard this. We, I have their, they gave me their business cards and I could still, we could still call them and get them to give us a Zoom presentation. Uh, but seriously, they said they are open, but they don't want to be the ones to go make national headlines. They want us to do it because we're the big boys on the block in this part of the world, right? You don't want to make an enemy of the US. So they are very cautious about releasing what they release. But there were someone from Brazil, Peru, uh, uh, Uruguay, other, other countries. And they said they are open. They share it. They share their gun camera footage with the public. Wow. Gun camera footage. Now, you're going to, you don't, what we saw of the Tic Tacs here was highly diluted, distorted. <laughs> and Carl yeah. Wolf talks about this on other sections that I didn't show. 
he said in 1965 they could read a license plate from satellites he saw it he said it must be much better now <laughs> and everything where he's he was puzzled by that everything we've seen seems blurry of the moon and mars he said they must have high resolution versions that he you know that he didn't see that higher than he saw if you could read a license plate in 65 what do you have now so um they show this high resolution footage now france is another country that's been open they had their 3af sigma group more recently and that other report uh, you probably remember the name of it skips uh, be, before that the first report in the 90s was a military kind of military oriented the second group is more academically and they came to the conclusion this is likely extraterrestrial and this is you know their nasa their scientists um i would imagine this phenomena spread out equally over the world and it seems i've always felt that the us for some unknown reason is behind a ufo iron curtain uh because thornton page who i you saw the guy with the patch over his eye he had an auto accident in the 60s the uh person in charge of can at nasa who you know was his uh boss he boasted in an interview with antonio junius who was a researcher from latin america that he was the one that came up in 52 he served on the robertson panel Thornton Page. It was his idea to create disinformation. In the interview, you can look it up, it's online. He goes, that was my idea when Hunius <laughs> asks him where the to now it wasn't because they knew they, they knew it was real. They did, they felt it could cause panic in the Cold War. And it would be safer to just, well, we're still living under this disinformation campaign 70 years later. I'd say it's high time it ended. Uh, we're way ready for all of this. If you're on the call right now, you're ready for this. Yeah. You're not going to go panicking. But this is what we're talking about. 70 years of rubber band being held back. Now it's going to snap back in the other direction. Who knows what's going to happen? The last time something like this happened, the Soviet Union ceased to exist. Okay? Mm. This is what happens when you hold back. The Berlin Wall fell down. I was in Vienna in 1989 at a research institute when that, right before that happened. And nobody, I worked with these Germans then. Nobody saw it coming. So if you're not, you know, go back to your question, Don, if you're not open enough about it, okay, you can hold it back. It's like holding water behind a dam. But when that water breaks through, I just imagine how many other witnesses we encountered four or five here in this talk. There must be a hundred times that many. Uh, wouldn't you imagine from NASA yeah, that saw sure. this, the guys, the people they mentioned who we've never heard from. And so uh, there were, are more open countries, but I guess it looks like it's finally happening here. China, we were told by the Chinese uh, researcher at the citizen hearing that you have to have a license to investigate UFOs in China, a state license, but you can get certified to be an official UFO investigator in China. Oh God, unbelievable. Okay, and that they, I... have a, they have an ATIP. They have uh, several ATIP programs, apparently, too. We haven't heard about those. So it's it's been held back in our country, uh, Don. I, I've always felt that. And now it seems to be a time where maybe it's going to more of them. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dan. Pablo, would you like to ask ask your question? Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I just, just wanted to vouch for what uh, has been said about Latin America, just with uh, a few other details, you know. This was prominent, especially in the 90s, 
and they approached a few schools and tried to to do you know some some promotion some like education on that however we need to be sure that especially in Latin American countries with a few exceptions education is you know not high I would say probably around 30% at most and um, there will be a lot of blocks from religious groups uh, on the open-mindedness. However, the other important point, most of the countries have been having internal civil wars, right, for the past, let's say, 100 years. And there were a lot of reports on this type of activities um, going on, stored, even discussed more freely than in the US, but nevertheless, uh, monitored and controlled. You will even see in some of the countries cases of as far behind as 19, uh, sorry, 1937 that were documented and that people from other countries came and retrieved whatever that they found. And some of the stuff kept, you know, was kept in local lore. And I'm talking about people that never went to school, that don't know how to write or read. So they, they were not able to make it up. They were more concerned on surviving the war or getting something to it. So, so I can vouch that's real, but unfortunately penetration is not that good because of either religious or other basic needs, uh, no priorities. Very good, yeah. No, thanks for sharing that's very good points. Uh, there's an infrastructure in some of the other countries uh, like the US or the UK where, you know, we have these Zoom meetings and we're open-minded, we're not held back, at least most of us by religious prejudices and we're open to talk about it. So while they're more open there, it's, the population might be less open to receiving it. That's an interesting point, thank you. Before I ask for any more questions, I'm just gonna share my screen for a second because I promised Andrew that I'd show some of Ingo's original pencil sketches from the moon. Because uh, a lot of what we see, especially in penetration, is pretty low-res quality. Right. Um, so you you guys can all see my screen okay here? Okay, yep. so this, yep. this, this is direct from Mingo's files here. So, you know, that's his title for it. And as you can see, his pencil sketches are a lot more resolution than what you've probably seen in the book so far. Uh, goes on. Uh, I think that's the same one again. They're repeated, and then there's some more here. Big building, yeah. Jeez. Yeah, he's got straight, like straight roads here. Lots of them. Uh, a building, but feels like it's made a canvas. He says it looks like it rose there, butting up against mountains. Another part of some kind of net. He's got pods here, grouped together as, as Simeon was talking about earlier uh, looking wow. down the holes here into a big building some kind of hut on the dome yeah so yeah that's just uh, some of Ingo sketches that's fantastic it's it's so I'm really glad you showed that it's so, it's so much like what Wolf was talking about right yeah and you know it's a lot more resolution than he was obviously able to print in in the book penetration is pretty low resolution right thanks that's that's fascinating Huge buildings, high towers, just like Wolf said. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, lots of stuff out there. Uh, anyone else got any questions they want to ask? Because there's none in the chat window and no one's got their hands up at the moment. I have another one. Yeah, go for it, Dom. 
Uh, yeah. When uh, it seems like you've talked to a lot of people, and some of those people, um, you know, they they were threatened, right? They they were yeah. threatened to um, with uh, physical harm, uh, death threats. Uh, God only knows. Um, like, I'm trying to get a feel for what would make someone want to come forward with that kind of, uh, you know, threatening situation on their shoulders. Did you get a feel for any of that? Yes. Thanks for bringing it up, Don. I have a number of witnesses that I haven't been able to bring forward because of that fear. Exactly. They uh, feel like they agreed not to talk about it. They signed something and they're loyal to their security. And so you reach a point in the conversation where they tell you a lot and they want to tell you, like Wolf said, they just want to share it with someone. They feel alone in what they saw and they want to share it. I think it's just a natural human trait to share. Uh, Obviously any military in the world has to counteract that natural trait to share so that you don't share some national secret for that particular country. But as the years go on, you have what are called deathbed confessions. Uh, What prompted me to write Black Swan Ghost was running into a woman right here in Boulder at a deli where a a just comedy show was starting, like an impromptu comedy event. And and we just started talking. And out of the blue, she said, did you ever hear about Roswell? And she said, my dad flew wreckage from uh, the base in Texas from Roswell to Texas to Wright-Patterson. And he only told us about it two weeks before he died. He called each daughter into the hospital room and said, I couldn't tell you because I was afraid that they would harm the family if I talked about it, but it wasn't any ordinary wreckage. There was a security guard guarding the crates from us, the pilots. The pilots had security clearances if you were serving in 1947, nuclear qualified pilots. They were not even allowed to see this so-called weather balloon. Uh, The guard never left the crate, (laughs) slept next to the crate. Wow. And I've met witnesses who worked at Wright-Patterson who told me they were allowed to go down into a room to see something and they won't tell me what they saw. They just stopped talking. They, 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 They can't say anymore. I don't know if it's involuntary. A fear sets in. If... I have never been subjected to any threat like that, but I imagine if you had been in the military and you knew what sort of discipline people would encounter who broke their security oaths, you might have a fear. So I think the motivation for them is just the desire to share. And they also know it's in the best interest of their people around them, their country, the planet to have information about this, that it should come out. At the same time, they feel like Either they could lose a pension or uh, some benefits from the government, or they could be physically harmed. Now, one witness I talked to at a conference, this topic of UFOs just came up and I didn't bring it up. Somebody else said it. And he just says to me, you know, they're real. I handled the piece of the Roswell wreckage. And for the next couple of days, I got to find out what the Roswell wreckage looked like, what it looks like under an electron microscope, all the stuff you read about in Corso's book. Uh, some of that, this person told me they hadn't read the Corso book, but they were a highly qualified engineer. They knew their stuff. 
And I could never, this person gave me their email and never responded again. I wanted to put obviously, you know, interview or anonymous or voice speaking to start the They will not come forward and I don't feel comfortable releasing their name until I get permission because they could, you know, it's just not something I would do. I want to, you know, I want them to come forward with what they saw. But the quality of people out there who know about this phenomenon, just not the NASA people, but people who've been in the military or scientists that have been approached, I'm feeling from the military, I guess that's who approached them. Can you figure out what the technology here is in the hull of the ship? It's a type of nanotechnology that's made in zero G. And what I was told was that the, the fineness of the circuits are so small that it's at a, nano, a nanometer scale that we don't have the equipment on earth to manufacture circuits at that tiny, tiny level of something that interacts directly with the quantum field, quantum level technology. But the person I talked to told me they had done everything they could to try to figure it out, but it was about a thousand years ahead of where we're at. And it would be like giving a laptop to someone from the middle ages. There's no way the best scientist in the middle ages would know how, what an iPhone, what to do with an iPad. So that's the analogy that I got. So I've encountered these witnesses and it gives me confidence to come forward to present this to, to you, the stuff that is just at least public that you can see on YouTube, knowing in the back that there are other witnesses that I've talked to who are very credible people that have really seen stuff that would probably blow our minds, really blow our minds. And I think we're, I think we're ready for this discussion. I'm, I mean, do you think your neighbors are ready to hear about this? I don't know. But I think those of us on the call here would be fascinated by these people. And I think that just some, to sum it up, I think they need to be granted immunity by Congress. There has been talk of having open public UFO hearings. Andre Carlson on the House Intelligence Committee asked for this a week ago on the news. Open. He must have seen this 40 minute video because he looked pretty freaking serious. He wasn't kidding around. Can you imagine that? they feel alone? They, they, they don't know who to talk to about this. They saw a video, you signed it, don't talk about it. There need to be open hearings. That's one way to deal with this. And these people are subpoenaed and they have to talk. Congress says, you have to talk. We outrank your security of this, uh, this hearing. Outranks so it's it. loosening up then. It's going to loosen I up. It's going to loosen up. And I think we're going to see some really interesting things come forward. And any of, if you've been involved in any of these topics or you know Daz or any of these topics that Daz is involved in or I'm involved in, any of us here, you won't be shocked. Ingo wrote a book about it years ago and there it is, you just saw the, the, the drawings, that's it. It's someone's doing this and they're probably here. And so eventually we need to talk about it. I'm not the only one who thinks so. Look at all the people on TTSA from Hal Putoff to Jim Semivan from the CIA to Steve Justice, from Lockheed Skunkworks. These people all retired or left so they could join with Tom DeLong and bring this out because they realized the conversation is probably about 20 years overdue. <laughs> That's my feeling. <laughs> it's overdue to yeah. have, a, they're asking for, Luis Salazar, what's he saying over and over again? We need to have a national discussion. The NASA information I just presented to you is just the tip of the iceberg. It's probably just the tip of the iceberg of the NASA stuff that I presented. It's probably just a fraction of that, but that's a fraction of this whole thing. We need to get this train rolling in an organized way to get the information to have discussions and hearings sure. on all the different facets. 
just at a minimum to keep our brains going so that we don't get dumbed down. We're having these experiences of contact or interaction in some way or just seeing something, but there's no way to intelligently talk about it with the rest of society. You don't go to the town hall and talk about the UFO you saw. But if these sociocultural stigmas gradually fade away like they've done for other topics like child abuse and meteorites, eventually flips around to the other direction, then we can look forward to decades of really interesting conversations wow, about this topic. I hope we can meet a year from now and yeah. hope a lot's come out. So, and, and, right. and another one last thing about it. These witnesses, they need to come forward because it's weighing on them to know this and not be able to talk about it. They don't want to just do a deathbed confession in the last days of their lives, feeling like they're going to their graves, taking the secret of Roswell with them, like this pilot. Yeah, They want to talk about it now. And, and wouldn't it be more interesting than some of the other things that we are talking about now? You know? So, oh, my God. That's yes. my answer. Thanks, man. If I could just add a little bit, it's that for you, Don. Um, as you know, I said in the past, I visited Ingo only for a day, but I spent the day asking him hundreds of questions. And one of my main questions was I asked him about penetration. And he was really serious. He said, you, you know, I, I said, you know, it, it seems fantastical to some people. Uh, what can you tell me about it? And he, and he said he was absolutely adamant and dead serious with his face when he said, well, it's all true. It all happened. And knowing Ingo is the person with the reputation he has, I have no reason to believe that he would have lied in any way. And on the security thing, he took his security very seriously because I also asked him a question and it was been it had, had been rumored for years that Ingo trained another secret unit of people in CRV, but they disappeared because they were you know, uh, intelligence agency spies. So I asked him that question about the rumor. And he actually said to me, well, he said, you know, I signed security oaths, so I cannot confirm or deny that. But he also, as he did say it to me, you know, he, he sat there with his big cigar in, in his hand like he did. But he, he said, you know, I cannot deny that. And he was just sat there with the biggest grin on his face, that like a big Cheshire cat. Wow. But, wow. It, it, you know, it just goes to show as well, I was using that as an example because... Uh, he even he took his security oath very very seriously on what he could say, and he only did the and he allowed the penetration stuff to come out because they told him he just had to keep it quiet for I think a decade or so. Yeah, he he released it ten years after his. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Thank you for for adding and, that. And and on update as well. Um, I think I might have, may have discussed this. I have lots of the Ingo stuff, and I have some stuff that's never seen the light of day before. Uh, I have actual, uh, and it's not stuff in penetration, it's stuff that more advanced in penetration, because I actually have uh, a series of 1996 Ingo Swan uh, remote viewing transcripts, where it was monitored by uh, Bob Durant, where he actually goes back to the moon, and he has, and he sees structure stuff, but he also has direct telepathic conversations with life forms on the moon and he details them in description what they're doing you know there's two different types there's offensive and defensive telepaths there he goes into great detail and i will be publishing that soon in in eight martinis we we can't wait for this this is amazing it is is amazing stuff because he details you know he has these conversations with them and i'll get you know i can give you a bit of information he he details how they are on a thirty thousand year movement uh migration through the galaxy 
<laughs> and, and he goes in the, and he, you know, he taught, he describes the telepaths lying down and they got metal plates in their head, which enhances the telepathic capabilities, but there's two sets of them. And there's one sets that do defensive to stop people looking at the moon, people like us as remote viewers. And then there's an offensive set of telepaths that do something with interacting with us on, on, on earth in some way. Mm. Mind boggling. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, our Des, we're we're uh, waiting for this. Yeah, uh, it's it's good just, stuff. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there's a bit more of a backstory, but I'm trying to get all the backstory to go with the article. But it will be soon. All right. We've got well, some questions. Um, uh, yeah, I just want to say I put a link in. Uh, I found this only yesterday, last night, preparing for this talk. This is a very good interview with Ken Johnson by Richard Hoagland. The person that discovered all the photos, he got them from Ken. Richard, if you've heard of him, ever interviewed on Art Bell or anything. This is, uh, Hoagland has his own radio show now called The Other Side of Midnight. And he's an excellent interviewer, I have to tell you. And he interviewed Ken and Brett. And I just put the link there. You can, it's about an hour long, fascinating stuff. You can just hear it for yourself. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, Andrew asked a question, has Simeon ever RV'd the moon himself? Yes, uh, we did some work with lunar transient phenomena. This is something that Ingo talked about in penetration as evidence. Ingo in penetration went through a lot of evidence. He, he uh, was actually quite a fan of science, science, the scientific method and scientific evidence. Uh, and when I talked with him, we were talking about New Scientist magazine and how we gather information. And, and he, uh, we were, were just talking about the scientific process. And uh, uh, he mentioned evidence in penetration of why the moon could be an artificial structure. The fact that it rings, someone astronaut dropped something and it rang like a bell. The material seems older than Earth, and it's supposed the moon's supposed to have come out of the Earth at some point. By, it was hit by another meteorite, and material came out, but it's older. And then he talks about the lunar transient phenomena, which is this glowing lights, you know, that seem to move across. So we did a session on that. Uh, I remember doing a session about the, the lights and so forth, and uh, I, I can't quite remember the results. I'm not sure if it really revealed anything about what they were. But that's one session that I can remember doing apart from the Apollo missions, one of the Apollo missions and that sort of thing. So. Excellent, thank And Mike, Mike asked, uh, what sociological threats does full disclosure print, uh, present to humans? The history of advanced tech cultures mixing with low tech cultures is not encouraging. Yes, uh, but at the same time, these beings if they've been around for thirty thousand years moving through our galaxy to minimum or longer i imagine if they really wanted to do something to us they would have done it before we had nukes and laser weaponry that seems to be developing by the day and all sorts of plasma impulse weapons and so forth space force that donald trump talked about the air force's intent on making so uh I don't quite, I know that analogy that when a high tech meets a low tech, it's not so great for the low tech, but um, I mean, this type of contact seems to be going on on a limited scale, at least for thousands of years. And to me, the threat is more national ignorance. Uh, as yeah. I often like to say, national security isn't just having a big beefed up military. It has to do with having a capable, competent population that can think and have a conversation intelligently, right? 
it has to do with infrastructure and energy and living in a sustainable way. That's all part of national security. And, and Eisenhower knew this. That's why so many of the things that happened in the US were done under Defense Authorization Acts. By the way, this uh, UFO, UAP task force came out of a defense authorization bill last fall. That's when someone put it in there and it stayed in there. So defense is not just a military thing. It has to do with uh, all the infrastructure and different aspects of security. It's, it's not just a military question. So I believe that this cover-up creates national insecurity because people are having contact and there's nowhere to go to talk about it. Uh, so many witnesses I've talked to I might've been the only person they ever shared the full story with. They didn't have anyone else who wouldn't think they were cuckoo. And they, uh, you know, they're willing to be video. They say, it's fine to put it on YouTube. Their kids write you after they passed on. This is the only video we have of grandma in existence. Thank you for your YouTube video. We show it to the grandkids. Grandma talking about her UFO cutter. We don't have any other video of her. Some people are so reluctant to come forward and they've never had anyone sit down with them and take them seriously. To me, that's like a national resource that's being wasted. If people have had some sort of experience and they don't get to share it because they think they'll be left out of town. And that's also a, the other side of it. So yeah, we don't want people running in the streets. I, I can imagine people that might not be able to handle this well, but most people in America, according to the polls, believe this is real. And we've seen this. I mean, I encountered Star Trek as a kid in the 70s as a little toddler or something. I, I think we'll be okay. I think people will, I think, I actually think we'll be okay if we slowly learn. I'm not saying disclose everything all next week, but over a 10 year period, what can be disclosed without threatening anyone's national security? I mean, it's, by the way, one more thing. Russia has been open about it since Pop, uh, this question came up. Don asked a question to me. There's a video you can look at on YouTube of former pe people from the Soviet Navy, generals and submariners who talked about the USO encounters. This is a whole nother subject, the oceans. It's just, well, you know, it's, huge. it's a huge, this is huge. And the, I, okay, here's what I feel about this. The evidence is there. It has to be a willingness of society to look at it in an intelligent way. Simeon, do you think that the, the issue may be, though, that um, if the truth uh, or the reality of the UFO question comes out, then we also have to deal with the possibility that hundreds of thousands of people that claim to be abductees uh, may be real as well? And, you know, that, that is, yes, that is that essentially is. a form of uh, abuse, yeah. rape, torture. Well, or not. It depends who you talk to. Uh, yes, some people enjoyed the experience yes. and other people feel like they were being tagged like we do to animals to find out how they migrate, that it's neutral. But I there is, about, there there is, is the pictures of, of human yeah. mutilations and animal yeah, mutilations yeah. as well. Well, we need to find out what this is. And I'm as curious as all the rest of you. Uh, there's a range. I have I've interviewed Terry Lovelace recently. It's another interview I did on you, the former Air Force. The former, he uh, served as assistant attorney general. He's open about his abduction experience. He wrote about it, incident double stand. He says he isn't bitter about it anymore. It's neutral. It wasn't pleasant. But I think we need to find out eventually. I know you're right, Des. We can't just go out and say, you know what? Because listen, you talk to someone like John Alexander, 
You all know who John Alexander is. Yeah. Do you know what he's told us at these presentations? That this is a real phenomena. It happens to people high up in the US government and nobody knows how to stop it. They don't, he, they come to John. John says, we don't even know exactly what's going on. It happens that you don't hear about it, but he know. and I've talked to people who've said that's happened to people who are pretty high up in, in the defense intelligence establishment. They wake up outside the house. You know, sometimes they're small wounds or they're missing time. Who do, who are they supposed to go to talk to about that? <laughs> Eventually we need to find out who this is. And I have to agree with Stephen Greer here. If they're doing something deliberately bad and this is really negative, we need to have a conversation with them and tell them to stop. Get them down here and say, enough, we've had it with this. If that's really what it is, uh, we need more information. I'm, I'm with you on that. Yeah. Excellent. Uh, Pablo, you've had your hand up for a while. Do you want to ask your question? Yeah, thank you. Just wanted to share something. So I've gotten into some discussions over this and also, unfortunately, some nasty situations because of the topic. But I think I, I can share, you know, just a bit on that. So back in 2004, uh, the guy that actually got me into remote viewing, he, I, I will not say he was a friend of Ingo or help with him. He met them, uh, especially when he was uh, working at, at the different uh, vendors of the Air Force, right? Back in, in the, in, at the start of the 70s. So uh, at that time, we were not even looking into, into RV. We're just working on a device uh, that we're trying to, to see if it would work uh, on communication and so on. And he, when we were checking some experimental data, he mentioned that once when he was still going through some, let's call them advanced studies with the Army, that's when, when he met Ingo. And Mingo, uh, Ingo was working on other telepathic you know, things, uh, and he got mental photographs of the moon, right? And uh, one of the things that he mentioned is that one of those resembled a clock tower. Of course, the, 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 the photographs were you know, wrapped up and later they, they, they were no longer available. However, this guy, he, he was well into the avionics role. He, he told a few of us that were discussing that, that first point, there were a lot of things in the penetration book that seemed, you know, that were information that was really limited to a very, very few set of people and that were, you know, a little bit like softened on the content. And the reason is because this is just the tip of the iceberg on what this, this really is about. And then when we try to, to get more information, he just told us that will get unwanted attention that you, don't, you, you really don't want to mess up with. I learned my lesson on the hard way um, since last year and just wanted to share that because I really am convinced that it is, there is more than meets the eye, it's more than what is available there, it's more than what has been argued and probably things that we are not yet aware of that may, may happen, right? And the other final experiences on the second part, on the abduction parts. There are two kinds where, where those, those guys, let's call them that way, and that are not from here. And other, other times where you find out that the guys that are taking people out are our own guys, right? Probably they these guys at the beginning and then they show up and you, you find out they look just like us. So uh, my personal experience is that the second group has been the worst. But, but that's the, the only thing I wanted to, to share. Thank you very much.
Excellent. Are there any last questions? Because uh, go on, Carl, go for it. So I've heard from various sources about um, something called an alien technology exchange that uh, higher, their higher technology is given to Earth because of the, the creativity and then the results are handed back. Is there anything you can say about that? You know, that's an interesting question because, uh, well, it was someone I encountered in the RV community um, who said they were aware of such a program within the government someone who had been in the program. That's exactly what they said, what you're saying. They said there was this exchange program. It was hard to believe. Maybe we're talking about the same person. Uh, they probably wouldn't mind if I mentioned it. it was someone from the RV program said they were aware of this from people that were in it, that things would be modified to work in a human setting and vice versa. So possibly such a thing would exist. Um, the, it seems to me though, that the extraterrestrials have really held back from contacting us more. They could be all over the place if they wanted to be, they seem to be waiting. This is my take. I could be totally wrong, but they seem to be waiting for us to be coherently acting as a society to talk about the subject. And I, I imagine they could show up on quite large numbers if they wanted to, uh, in our skies and cause general panic and mayhem. Uh, but they don't seem to want to do that. Um, so it seems like it's a chess game almost, like we make a move, they make a move, and we're making a move right now. So we'll see what the move is next. But my overall feeling like this is it's not going to be something really under our total control as humans. It's also up to them. There's two parties here, at least two. They could do their own. They've Looks to me, I mean, I've interviewed people that saw the Hudson Valley Triangle. I can't prove that was extraterrestrial, but a lot of people saw it and people had missing time. And, and we've never really talked about what that was. They could be doing that, I imagine, more often. So I see this as a two-sided coin, and we can't just talk about it from our point of view. I mean, as we progress talking about it amongst ourselves, I, I would just imagine that there's a kind of response some way from this so in a non, i would imagine a non-threatening way it seems like it's been that way so far where we gradually become aware of them and maybe in 20 years it won't even be a big deal or may you know it's possible maybe people just won't feel it's a forbidden topic anymore so we don't know none of us really know we're really going into the unknown here but every time you do an rv session you're looking at that blank sheet of paper or the whiteboard as some of you use and you know it's not so scary after a while, that whiteboard or the white paper, when you first started RV, it was like, oh no, what do I do, right? And then you start writing and the information, and I think that's sort of what this is. We'll figure it out. We don't know what it's going to look like, but I think it's worse not to talk about it and to pretend it's not happening. I think it's healthier to have a conversation like this. The information will come out about what the government's been involved with, but eventually it'll be up to us to deal with it in an intelligent way. Uh, a, a positive way we've got to decide that's what we want it to be and make it fit that that's my view of it because so. i think i mean we've just done a session Daz was involved in that too looking at alien materials and we all felt quite suitably warned off we didn't feel as though we should be should have been there so 
it wasn't like available for viewing. Right. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. There's a time for everything. And is it, is it them warning you off or is it part of your mind saying you're not ready to handle this yet? We're, you know, maybe we're not ready for everything and it just has, but I think it's healthier doing what we're doing right now is having a discussion, bringing out the evidence, being citizen journalists here for real, because no one else has done it for us. No one else has helped us with this. We've been on our own with this for decades, right? And now we've got Zoom, we've got all the YouTube and Twitter, we can communicate. And the government, at least here in the US said, okay, it's time to move a little bit. And it's, I don't know if they all agreed with that, but some of them did. And TTSA kicked their butts and said, "You, they must've said, you either move on this or we're gonna start bringing it out ourselves with, and you're not gonna like that. So they did. And I, I, I imagine that's what happened. And we've got some movement. So it's, uh, I think it's going to happen and we're gonna see, you know, every day is gonna be a new day now, but isn't that better? than what we had before where we know this is really you know one's talking about it <laughs> so anyway, that's just my view on it but thanks for uh, the uh, the pope in italy several years ago actually said publicly that we were not alone that it's impossible for us to be alone so there's that's a question great. by by there's some questions in the chat yes uh, uh I'm yeah. just going to let Rich, because Rich has had his hand up for quite a while there, if he Please. wants to ask his question first. Rich, are you still there? All right, let's go to the last few in the chat then. Uh, from One from Zishan. Have you spoken to or seen Farsight's recent research? Because they've gone quite, you know, they've gone quite hardcore on the on the alien topics. Not recently, no. I haven't, I haven't seen it in the past. I think I've seen it in the past few months. So, no, I'm not familiar with it at the most recent one. I think that covers most of the ones in the, in the chat window. Are there any last questions anyone wants to ask? Oh, there's one more. Oh, Rich, sorry, he's having issues. His question was, uh, I was going to ask if there are things we can see from our side of the moon as an astronomer. I bet there are, because this is what John Stevens told us. He told all of us down there over at Farsight. He said, look, guys, you just have to get a telescope, a decent telescope. You'll see stuff that doesn't fit with what you've been told. I actually haven't done it to this point. I've just looked through kind of smaller telescopes uh, but I imagine I would take a look. Uh, being involved in this topic with RV has taught all of us about a lot of, about the limit. There's a threshold of awareness. There could be things that you're seeing through your eyes, but your conscious mind is not letting you see because it's just for whatever reason, it's not showing it to you. And, you know, to get below the limit is to see a little more. And I imagine just having a conversation like we just had over the past two hours, you might see more than you saw in the past. Just like I mentioned before to Don, reviewing some of the wolf and hair videos that I saw 15 years ago. I, I could see more of them this time than it meant more to me this time than it did in 2000 early, you know, those that so maybe looking, we would see things we haven't seen in the past and it's been there the whole time. 
That's great. Yeah, great answers on that. Well, I want to say, you know, thank you, Simeon, on behalf of everyone here. It's been a really interesting discussion. And it'd be great to get you back on at some point, because I know, as for per our discussion, you've done a massive amount of research on crop circles every year. As yeah. Well. And we haven't really recovered, you know, a lot of your remote viewing history as well. So, yeah, it'd be great to get you back. I'd be happy to talk about those. They're all great. They're all interrelated subjects, and they each deserve their own. They're all really big. So... We'll do it another time. But thank, hey, thanks for listening, folks. I know this is a lot of information, but I really appreciate you spending some time this evening or this afternoon, wherever you are, just to listen to this because it's important. And you can you can play a role now with people that you encounter to help them learn about this without, you know, quaking in fear, right? <laughs> so so thanks, Des. And thanks, yeah, everyone. Yeah, again, thank, thank you very much for coming along and thank sharing you. this with us, taking the time. Thanks, everyone. You, I hope you have a good weekend. Uh, I'll get the video and the podcast up as soon as possible, and I'll send all the links to Simeon as well so he can uh, he can do what he wants with all the content. Okay, thanks, guys. We'll, we'll see you next time. Have a great day. Take care, everyone. Have a good weekend. Bye-bye. Okay, bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Signal Line, a remote viewing podcast. Don't forget to check out remoteviewed.com for remote viewing resources or our videos on YouTube under Remote Viewed.